Greetings, Raise Community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Jenna Goodman, who serves as co-founder and CEO at Generous Change based in Lawrence, Kansas, where I was last month and got to catch up with Jenna. And now we're here. Welcome, Jenna. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we love learning uh, about the career paths of our uh, colleagues in the advancement sector. Yours is unique. Uh, but before we dive into the career path, I want to understand your higher education path, in fact. So take me back to junior year of high school. Who was that, Jenna? What was she into? And what led her to the University of Central Missouri? Oh, gulp. Brent, I, I didn't think I'd ever have to go back to junior year of high school, so I... <laughs> the good parts or the really bad parts. I mean, really, whatever you're feeling. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, there, it's a little scary, but um, junior year of high school, I um, was in Independence, Missouri at St. Mary's High School, and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, uh, but I knew that I had to go to college. I was the first person in my family to go to college. So um, I didn't really know what that journey would look like. I didn't know how to apply. I didn't know where to apply. <laughs> Very little advice, but I needed to go pretty close to home. And so when I applied at, it was Central Missouri State at the time, but University of Central Missouri, I actually got a, a full ride scholarship. And so I was able to go, um, I, you know, I had to pay for room and board, but otherwise my tuition was paid for, which was magical. I mean, I couldn't really have imagined that. And so I had to take, I had to take it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what led me to CMSU. That's very cool. And uh, as a fellow first gen uh, college graduate, the world of philanthropy, a little bit opaque, uh, probably uh, growing up. Although my understanding is you got a taste of philanthropy, maybe in something like second grade, uh, but I'm not sure if you knew it at the time. So maybe share uh, that part of your your journey. Yeah, no, I, I did not, not know anything about philanthropy, but um, I was in Catholic school um, my whole life. My, my mom went to Catholic school. My mom worked at the school. And so she really wanted me in that school and um, she and my dad got divorced uh, when I was super young and then it was really tough for her to pay tuition, even working at the school. And so when at the start of my year, third grade year, um, she had to move me out of the school and I was out for a couple months and then someone anonymously paid for my tuition to allow me to go back to that grade school. And it was amazing. I mean, I don't think I knew even until I was into high school about that moment, but, and we never found out who it was, but it was pretty magical. Um, so I have a, a special place in my heart uh, for scholarships, <laughs> you know, um, and education. I mean, it's amazing. Do you ever think about like what would have happened if that hadn't happened? Uh, I'm not much of a look back kind of person, <laughs> but when I do think about that, I mean, yeah, it was, it, it, I think it definitely would have shaped or reshaped my life. I mean, I, I feel like 
I was on the right path for a reason and that that person, whoever it was, uh, knew something about me that I had no idea <laughs> about in the third grade, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I think it, it was definitely a life-changing moment. It's amazing. And, and it's, uh, you know, in the, one of the real challenges in this sector, I think, is, uh, you know, it's June 30th right now as we're recording this. So we're going to hear about donors and dollars and we're going to hear about, uh, you know, the the mega gifts and, and so forth. Um, and oftentimes those stories and those headlines, you know, come at the expense of like the individual, like little nudge, that little, you know, impact uh, that alters the trajectory of people's lives, right? Which is why we're all kind of in this space, but it's really, it's really amazing to sort of be reminded of it with your personal journey um, and, and, and to, to see sort of the, the intervention of philanthropy in your life. And then again, um, going to at the time Central Missouri State and having a full ride. Tell me about that experience. Did you love it right away? Did you feel like you were, you know, in the right place right away? Was it a tough experience? I mean, what do you, what do you think about when you ref reflect on college? Yeah, I think I had a pretty idealistic view of college, like, you know, college in the movies. <laughs> like, we would all be on the quad, you know, reading to one another and <laughs> that it would be this magical experience. Um, it wasn't quite like that. Uh, but and I think I also thought that I would know more about myself, you know, that I would have a path very quickly that I would start in college and just all of a sudden know where I wanted to go and what job I wanted to have. That did not happen. So I, but I did have a great experience. I think I felt so much pressure to keep my scholarship that I was a little uh, intent on getting good grades and didn't spend as much time exploring as I wish I could have. Tell me so, more about that. I think we forget yeah. sometimes that there can be sort of strings attached to the scholarship. And so uh, what what was that, if you're comfortable sharing in your case? Yeah, sure. No, I had to keep a, a pretty high GPA. Um, I can't remember how high, but pretty high. And um, I'm, you know, I like to I like to get an A anyway. <laughs> so so I was uh, really focused on, you know, don't mess it up. You got to you got to keep this going and 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 you're the first person to do it. You got to you got to go all the way. And so I felt a lot of pressure to really do things that I was good at maybe already instead of taking that extra step to try things that maybe I wouldn't be so good at, but I probably would have learned a little bit more about myself. So I wished I think I'd had more time to explore a little bit in college and to understand uh, who I was, like take more sciences, you know, when I started working in fundraising and was partnering with scientists, I became so interested in science and kind of realized that I, I missed the boat there in college because I was like hyper-focused on everything I could get an A at, <laughs> which was... But, yeah. I'm going to call you out a little bit right now because as hyper-focused as you may have been, I also understand that you had an early foray into entrepreneurship while on campus. True. So yes. you did have some cycles that maybe instead of pursuing uh, science, you pursued caffeine studies. Is that right? <laughs> yes. The study of caffeine. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So I 
in my junior year, I started working at this tiny little drive through coffee shop. It was like a shack in the middle of a parking lot, which was really unheard of in Warrensburg, Missouri. But the people that owned it were actually from Seattle and so, or Alaska, I think. And so they, they were everywhere. And so it was a super fun job. I mean, I got to work alone. This was a like a franchise type model. They had units everywhere or they no. moved from the Northwest and set up shop in Warrensburg, Missouri, as one does and opens up an espresso. <laughs> yes. parking lot. Okay. Yeah. So they were Air Force. So uh, Whiteman Air Force Base is super close to Warrensburg. And so they started one in the in Whiteman Air Force Base and then also in Warrensburg. So they had two shops and um yeah they I, I mean they trusted me to i think i was like the only person who could actually get up early which is hilarious because i'm the worst morning person <laughs> so i didn't always make it on time there were times where uh one of the owners was like knocking on my apartment door to get me up but um yeah i worked there for a year and then they were retiring from the air force and were ready to sell and my boyfriend turned husband um, <laughs> at the time was already out of college. And um, when the owners asked me if I would be interested in buying the coffee shop, I mean, I couldn't even afford the coffee it, at the coffee shop. So I definitely didn't take it very seriously. But then the more that I talked to my husband, I mean, he was like, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity, we have to try, we have to do this. And so his parents are the most magical people and they co-signed on a loan for us and um we bought the coffee shop while i was a junior in college and so what does that mean what did you buy what was the enterprise that you purchased yeah so we bought we actually owned the little building so it was an eight by (laughs) twelve i say shack but like a tiny little building with two windows on the sides and then all the equipment so we had this you know one espresso machine we sold shaved ice in the in the summer so we had a shaved ice machine and then yeah all the customers uh, which i already knew um because i worked there for a year so that was pretty great it was kind of a smooth transition there but yeah, and and we changed. Like, I mean, you're basically, I mean, essentially seeing the same people every day of your life. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> These same people, which was, I mean, it was so fun because I knew their order, and we had those two windows, so they would pull up on either side, and most of the time they didn't even have to say anything. I just knew what they ordered, and I handed it out the window, which did make it a little difficult for the people who had to work when I wasn't there (laughs) because people couldn't remember what they ordered. And yeah, so I started writing it on their punch cards so that we could all remember. You got to log the contact report. That's right. That is right. Yes. Yes. Um, Very cool. And so, uh, I mean, that sounds like more than a full-time job. So you're all in on entrepreneurship, stumbled into it. how do you go from that experience to the world of uh, development? Yeah. How do you go from that? (laughs) Um, So it was, we, so I, I graduated from college, thankfully. Um, I did have a moment where I wasn't 
sure if I could do all the things, um, but I am so glad that I stuck it out and actually graduated uh, with a broadcasting degree. So using it right now, look at me, I'm, I'm living the dream. Um, but I, uh, we ran the coffee shop for five years and at five years we were ready to sell. Um, also it was like, I finally figured out what I was doing. <laughs> and so it was like, oh, okay, yeah, now we should move on. But I think we thought because it's a small town that it would take us like a year to sell the coffee shop. And, um, we actually sold it to someone that worked for us. So it took like a month. And then I realized I had to get a job and I had not applied for a professional job, you know, since graduating from college. So a lot of my customers were from the university and I had people from the foundation and somebody encouraged me to apply for a development position. And I had no idea what development was and, you know, our job descriptions are not super specific. And so <laughs> I was calling the foundation and trying to get a hold of fundraisers to ask them what they do and how they do it. And they were all traveling and out of the office. So I never got a hold of anybody. It wasn't until the interview that I think somebody actually said fundraising. And I was like, uh, oh, <laughs> okay. Okay. I am asking people for money for my alma mater. I think I can do that. And so I got the job. And um, that's how I started. People literally don't know what development means. No, they do not. Everybody knows what fundraising means. We say development. Yeah, totally confusing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, but that was um, the start of my my adventure into into higher education advancement. So first week on the job, take me back, very different than your last week on the job at the coffee shop. Very different. So we had mostly paper files. Um, we did not have a sophisticated database, really. We were just starting to actually use a database. And so I was truly sitting on the floor going through files um, from donors, looking at birthday cards and letters and documents um, to try to figure out who was important and who we should call. And it was super fun, like in a, you know, treasure hunt kind of way <laughs> where you're like, I'm trying to find the people, but it was also so confusing. I mean, none of us really knew what we were doing. And I think we were kind of honest, at least with, there were only, I think, four or five of us in the office and we all were pretty new and we all were just like, I don't know, we're just figuring this out, you know? Um, and I had an amazing Dean and she was so wonderful in just trying to figure it out with me. Who so was that? Uh, her name's Alice Greifey. What made her a great partner? She was really, capable of talking to humans <laughs> you know like she was she could connect with people and she knew everything about all of these different departments and she knew what was maybe most important in a conversation so i didn't feel like i was having to get her to um 
stop teaching people <laughs> or, you know, sometimes I think with faculty, it's just trying to put them in more of a conversation and less of a teaching or presentation mode. And with her, she just had a natural ability to talk to people and she was warm and funny and adventurous because we were, you know, getting on a plane to go to Seattle and we had no idea what we were doing and we could admit it together. So it was, it was really fun. What does uh, building loyal coffee customers and building loyal donor relationships have in common? I think when you and by the way you can say nothing brent like we're like no i i actually do think there's a connection there i mean i feel like i have to think there's a connection because somehow i got the job <laughs> after i had the coffee shop i actually do think that there is uh there's something about seeing people and even as cheesy as it sounds just remembering someone's drink order and being the first person that they see in the day and actually really seeing them um, was what I loved about the coffee shop. And I feel that way about conversations with donors that you are seeing people in a way that most people don't get seen. And there are these crazy intimate conversations with total strangers that most people don't get to have. And so I think it, there is that correlation of just making people feel seen and heard. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think, uh, look, it's, it's a commodity, right? Coffee is a commodity. So what are they buying? Uh, and frankly, paying a markup for when you could just as easily make it at home. It's partly the experience Maybe they like seeing you. Maybe they liked, you know, just having a, a, a break on their commute. Um, I think about it, you know, I got my haircut yesterday. It's like, why do you go to a bar? I mean, what are you getting a haircut? Well, kind of, but why do you go to the same barber? There's consistency, there's predictability, there's, you know, an experience, a conversation, human to human connection. And um, ultimately, you know, I am sure that, that that is a big part of the loyalty that you experienced. If you had rub people the wrong way or frustrated them or not known their order or taken too long or made it wrong or not really expressed a genuine interest in delivering a good experience, I'm sure that there would have been less loyalty. Uh, and, I, and I think it, it just applies that, you know, people buy coffee from people and they, and they give, uh, they give to people and it doesn't mean that they won't transact online or, you know, buy in the mobile app. Um, but but when you can create the human to human connection, it definitely stands out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that I also realized early on that fundraising is super autonomous and entrepreneurial. And for some people, that is amazing. And for other people, that's kind of torture <laughs> for me. For me it, was think, great. It, it sounds like it was particularly in in your context at Missouri State, now Central Missouri. Uh, you know, when you're in that sort of treasure hunt stage where there's, you know, maybe not uh, systems and history and as much to build from, you know, relative to a super mature shop that is in more of, you know, oil the machine mode, um, you all, it sounded like we're on the floor, spreading out the index cards, you know, building yeah. the machine for the first time. 
Um, did you like the work right away? Did, did it take a while? I mean, when you think about early visits, early calls, did you, you know, one thing about the coffee shop, they're coming to you. So you probably don't have a lot of people, you know, slamming the phone uh, on you or, 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 you know, uh, spinning out of the parking lot, you know, in, in anger. I, I don't know if you had any negative or positive experiences early on that um, got you excited about the development work. Yeah, I think I, I think I felt confused about the work for a long time. Um, so in some ways, I, I really liked the conversations, but I didn't always know how to have them, you know, how to have purposeful conversations. And well, let's go back right yeah. now, role play, go back in time, sit down next to that Jenna. What are the, the like, if you could give her 30 seconds of advice, knowing what you know now, what would that 30 seconds be? Don't feel apologetic. This is an amazing job that is necessary. Embrace your philanthropic advisorness in this conversation and don't worry about what you don't know. Just listen and ask great questions. Well said. I think that was like 22 seconds. Uh, <laughs> Brief. So, and you're on behalf of the alma mater. So you've got uh, six years of work in the coffee shop. A lot of people, you know, you went to the school. A lot of the customers are alumni, faculty, connected to the community. You go in, you work with the dean, you have a couple years. Um, this is all Warrensburg, uh, the, the mule capital of Missouri, as most people <laughs> know. So you're, you're in Warrensburg, and then you make the leap to KU, uh, a different mission, a different organization, different city. You don't have people recognizing you in the grocery store as the woman who owns Wired, the coffee shop, right? A, a, a different place. Um, what was that transition like? What was it like sort of learning a new mission, selling a new mission, and frankly, one that you personally hadn't lived? Yeah, honestly, it was hard. It was hard. I, I felt, uh, especially because I wasn't an alum, and even little things like, I mean, just being in conversations and people asking me, when did I graduate from KU? And then saying, oh, I, I didn't go to KU. And then then they're like, where are you from? And I had to say Missouri, which is just torture in Kansas. <laughs> so, so things like that, um, I think it all added to- There's a part of me that literally wonders, like these are colleges, the affinity is so high. You have tens of thousands of students to draw from. Why do you need to hire somebody from Warrensburg, Missouri to come over and have that first 30 second conversation? Like, why don't we just exclusively hire students into fundraising roles, grow our own talent so we can just yell rock chalk Jayhawk and not even think <laughs> twice about it? Like, why do we, why? Like, are well, we doing I was, I was that awesome, Brent. They they were like, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> we need her. Um, yes. No, I mean, it's a great point, but I do feel like I'm so lucky that they, that they invested in me. I'm so lucky that they that they trusted that I could do it, even though I didn't, you know, bleed crimson and blue. But I I think I it did not lead to me feeling very confident when I started. I think I felt like an outsider for a very long time. Part of that is my own 
angsty personality, but I, I think it's also just wanting to prove that I could do it. And, and since I got the job, not wanting to ask too many questions and feeling like I just needed to go and figure it out. And so, yeah, I think the first year was really hard. Um, and then I started to, I mean, the more you do it, the, the more, the easier it is. And when I, I think my turning point really was when I realized I believed in education. So I didn't, it didn't matter where I went to school. I had this experience as a first generation college student that is, it translates to any institution. So if I, wherever I worked, I, if I was in education, as long as I could share my excitement about that, then I was fine. But it just took me a while to get there. Um, and I think if I had sought out maybe more mentors or felt more comfortable asking questions, I think that transition might have been a little bit faster. I recall a conversation I had with Amy Noah, who leads uh, the foundation at Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma. She had been at Purdue for a long time, made that transition. And she just, you know, she commented how, you know, it's it's little things like who are the famous football stars that every single person knows that, of course, you don't know not growing up like in that community. And it does make you wonder should, you know, as it relates to onboarding, should there be some kind of boot camp trivia, like, I don't know, curriculum of, of like, how do we make you maybe not be a KU alum in 30 days, but how do we kind of make you feel like you're at least 80% of the way there on context? And uh, just because there, there is such an, ex like, it's part of the culture that makes these universities what they are, um, but if you don't have that foundational level of knowledge, you're just going to feel like you don't belong. And I wonder if different universities, like how different universities address that, not about how to onboard you as a development officer, but like how to onboard you as a member of this ridiculous community that is so passionate and knows these nuanced phrases and people and key moments and the biggest wins and the most painful failures. And it's not just about sports, but like that kind of community education. I love that idea, Brent. I think the idea of being taught the traditions and the most beloved people and the highlights of what everybody talks about, because there, there's all these common things. And so I think that would be amazing if you could start and, and learn that, that stuff from the beginning. Well, I definitely won't start that, but I hope the folks will <laughs> Yes. Somebody or, will do that. Yes. Or, or if you have examples, like somebody maybe is doing that really, really well. Um, it's sort of the, the non-tactical, non, you know, how do we get you a laptop and get you on our systems and teach you, you know, even our like fundraising process. But how do we, uh, you know, how do we teach you what makes XYZ institution, XYZ institution? And um, yeah, interesting. Um, and, and so when you think about the experience at KU, almost 10 years, uh, which is a rare level of tenure, uh, given all the stats we see around development uh, turnover. So that implies that in spite of the first year being tough, um, you found your footing and you had success and you were able to grow. Um, and I'd love to just know like memorable experiences, you know, when you think about the absolute highlights of those, you know, almost 10 years, 
um, specific events or specific donor um, conversations that uh, really stand out? Yeah, I think, oh man, I had a lot, <laughs> a lot of conversations over those 10 years. And I, I did stay with the same constituency. So I was with the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences the, the whole time, which was so fun and so hard because it's like you're talking to a theater alum, you know, in the morning and then you're talking to a chemist <laughs> in the afternoon and then an English alum. Like it, it is so diverse that it kept me interested and I loved being able to kind of switch gears and learn as I was going about the college. Um, I think that specifically there were some donors. I, I One thing that just sticks out in my mind every time I think about KU is I had um, a couple that I was working with outside of Seattle and they had already done a couple gifts, uh, major gifts before I met them, but they were ready to start a fund in honor of a professor on campus. Um, and so I had talked with them and then I actually went and picked up the check and had, you know, the biggest check I've ever had in my life in my bag. <laughs> and so it was like, touching it and double checking that it was there my entire way back. And I got on the bus to go to the economy parking lot after I got off the plane. And the professor who was being named, you know, in this fund and his wife, they were on the bus. And I just, I could not stop smiling because it was a surprise. And of course I couldn't say anything, but I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> uh, so it was just one of those really cool. And I being able to tell all of them that story finally after everything was announced and they were all together was just so fun. So that was a really memorable experience. Um, and I had just some amazing conversations. Like I remember reaching out to someone who had been a philosophy professor on campus and he went on to become a hedge fund manager in Stanford, Connecticut. And I reached out to him and with a pretty awesome email and he responded like right away. And I remember going to Stanford, Connecticut and feeling so crazy nervous, thinking, what do I have to say to this person? Like, I don't know anything about philosophy. I don't know anything about hedge funds. I, I am not qualified to have this conversation. And walking into this crazy, beautiful kind of corner office, it was like the size of my whole house with beautiful art and sitting down and him just saying, your email was so great. And I loved the question that you asked. And I can't, I can't wait to talk to you. And realizing that that's how you start the conversation is from the very first moment that you reach out. It is your ability to actually make that connection instantly. And then, and then you don't have to worry so much about what you're going to say, <laughs> you know, like it is just a conversation. It is really asking good questions and then being prepared to listen for the answers. No, it's such a good example. And we are, um, I, I am I am so inspired by examples like you just shared because ultimately that same individual 
was getting annual fund solicitations, getting the alumni magazine, getting the event invitations. And I don't know what year that was, but you know, today people are even more distracted by the mass and by the uh, notifications and phones. And it has made, uh, and, and frankly, I think even advancement has fallen victim to the easy button, like let's, you know, it was mail merge and then it's going to be mail merge in an email format. And now it's mail merge via text messages. And, and there is such a difference between true personalization and fake personalization. And everybody wants to be able to fake personalization to say, dear first name, insert gift amount, June 30th, click here to give. And it's fine. And it definitely, you know, it works, um, but it doesn't get you that kind of reaction with that individual. And it doesn't always need to be the corner office in Stamford. Like there's a lot of home offices <laughs> in, in, you know, random little towns where people want to be more philanthropic. Like I think very few people wake up and think, you know what, one of my goals this year is to be less philanthropic. But we are more distracted than ever. Um, and I think that's where, you know, thoughtful emails like the one that you've shared or the kind that we hope we're inspiring fundraisers to write, leveraging our technology, um, stand out, you know, more, more than ever. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that that was the thing that for me turned the corner in my confidence. I mean, that meeting, especially because I felt so completely out of place and it, I do feel like things changed after that for me, you know, just that feeling like I, I know that there is something there that I can connect to. And, and if not, then it's not the, it's, you know, they're not the, the, they're not interested or they're not the right person, you know, to make a gift and not feeling bad about that. Or like, it's personally my fault or that they need to like me to make a gift <laughs> like just knowing that it is there are ways to connect to the university that that i actually do know and that 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 is a skill that i bring when i'm in these conversations um, yeah. that super helped me to unlock my confidence yeah it's about being a conduit right it's about being a connector between you know who they are what they care about and what the university or the nonprofit is working on and it's not about you being an expert in philosophy or hedge fund or anything and i think that's one of the one of the cool things about this work is is you get you get exposure to people from so many different backgrounds so many different um stories and i think you kind of find out that look people are kind of the same i mean there's nuance but you know in the end like there's sort of the Maslow's hierarchy and what people really, you know, care about and how they identify. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I love your point around just being confident, not feeling bad yeah. about uh, sending that email or not feeling bad about making the ask, like feeling, feeling really good. And even if the answer is no, that's amazing because it means that on that treasure hunt, we just found uh, a path that is not the right path. Great. Now we can cross that one off the map and start heading down a different direction. And I think like we, we talk about it a lot, like clear disqualification is such a such a gift it's such a win because it means you don't need to wonder and you don't need to worry and you don't need to have that person in some holding queue of future assigned prospects which is why uh, you, you know get getting just getting more knowledge 
to improve the treasure hunt um, through the process of elimination sometimes can also be a win. Absolutely. Yeah. You, it, I think saving your brain space and your time and your energy for the people who do, who do want to give. Love it. Um, okay. So you are, uh, you know, nine plus years in and then get uh, the entrepreneurial bug again. Yes. That come about. And yeah. tell me about the, the aha moment, if there was one, when you said, I need to, I need to be a part of something new. I want to make a difference. I want to start generous change. Was there one moment or a series of experiences? There actually really kind of was one moment. I mean, um, so I had the chance to hire people on, I had a horrible chance, I guess, to fire someone. So that was, that's never fun, but I learned a ton from that experience. And then- why was it horrible? And why did you have to fire them? We almost never talk about firing people uh, on yeah. this on this podcast. We probably should. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I'm glad to be the first. No. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think part of that, why it was horrible was it was my, the, my first time really. I mean, I, at the coffee shop, it was so different. So, I mean, I did fire people at the coffee shop, but it was like, so obvious that they were not doing a good job like they weren't showing up or you know i don't know they were taking money that's just an example but at, in this professional situation it was so different and it's so there's so much nuance i think that it's really hard to trust your gut and so you kind of for me it was like the signs were there pretty early, but I wasn't, I was just like, oh, maybe it's just me or maybe I'm being too picky or maybe, you know, I'm not setting clear enough expectations, even though I kind of knew that it just wasn't gonna, it wasn't working. Um, and I think part of that was just like, not the volume that is required, especially with the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, we had 80,000 living alumni, like we were our own university, essentially. And this particular role, I mean, we needed somebody who could just travel as much as possible, see as many people as possible. And that just wasn't happening. So um, it was horrible because I felt so guilty. You know, this is somebody's livelihood. This is a, a professional position this is and then i also just felt bad like i messed up you know because they failed i failed so i i was taking it super personally and um that was a disaster <laughs> so so it was it was really hard I mean, thank you for the candor and i have been in a similar situation and i contrast that with um athletics all the time you know i think about Look, we were at the K uh, at the Big Twelve Development Conference, and Bill Self, who's the legendary KU basketball coach, spoke to us. I think about coaches all the time. Why are they so good at saying, "Goodman, you're benched. Goodman, you're off the team because of these three things. Good luck. You know, move on." Mm -hmm. uh, constantly making personnel decisions, oftentimes that are very subjective, and they certainly take some responsibility. But they're not, this is my fault. What did I do? It's, I set them up for success. I set clear expectations. 
they're the right person, the wrong person, they're the right culture fit or they're not, and we're making a decision and moving forward. Why are coaches so good at giving that kind of direct, hey, don't do it that way, do it this way. Yeah. Candor, clarity, direct. And we just dance around this stuff so much because the counter argument is, Jenna, think about by delaying the decision to part ways with the person that you knew wasn't in the right seat or wasn't the right person, think about all those donor relationships that didn't get started. Think about all the philanthropy that wasn't generated because we were worried about that person's career and all those things. I mean, that, that is the tension that, that I think we, we feel, we feel, and when I say it that way, it sounds clear, but the sort of unknown nebulous donor relationships that aren't being developed are not nearly as real as the person sitting across from you on the other side of the desk that needs to figure out what they're going to do to, you know, pay the bills next month after they get this news. Yeah. And that, I mean, exactly your, what you're saying, the example of a coach. I mean, that is how I now, you know, working with fundraising managers and actually helping to provide all the stuff I wished I'd had <laughs> when I was a fundraising manager. I mean, part of it is we don't get coached. You know, we go from being a fundraiser, which is super autonomous, to leading a team, which is, you know, being a team player and being a coach. But there's not a lot of training for that. And so it's a really hard transition that I don't think we've spent a lot of time thinking about in advancement. Um, so that's part of why we created this business. But the sort of aha moment really was being able to hire new people and remembering back all the things I wished I'd known earlier and essentially creating a training manual. Um, so it wasn't just onboarding, like, here's your computer, here's the CRM, here are all the people. It was, here's how to write an email. Here's how to make a cold call. Here is Here are the questions to ask when you're in a meeting. Here are the things that people bring up <laughs> all the time. Um, really trying to give these new teammates the inside scoop and the really practical tools that they need to succeed way faster than I did. And it was awesome. <laughs> it was like, it was really great. And um, it, I think worked really well. I saw them, you know, excel pretty quickly. And uh, so it was, it, I took that and my business partner um, who started Generous Change with me, Nancy Jackson, she was actually my boss at the time. And we went and presented at a case conference on a few of these uh, skills that we had put into this training manual. And at the case conference, there were like 200 people in the room. And at the end, I feel like half of them came up and asked us questions and they took all of our crappy word documents that we'd you know, created for the the leave behind and it just felt like we could help a lot of people you know the people need this this is something that um we could do on a bigger scale and so that was 2016 and then it took us another year but we took the leap and started generous change in 2017. 
So now you are in a business uh, where, where you need to develop leads, qualify or disqualify, know if there's a mutual fit or not. What are the one or two or three characteristics where if I were a fundraising leader, I were an advancement leader, that if I told you, it would indicate to you that generous change could be a really good partner. And there might be things I could tell you where you would say, oh, I really wanted to work with Brent's organization, but honestly, it's probably not the right fit based on the way he just described things. Like, how do you know when someone might be a great fit versus maybe not as strong of a fit? That's a super good question, Brent. And I think, I mean, my initial thought is that actually everyone needs this. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. And I, I know about ever too. However, <laughs> I know. that spectrum of everyone needing it is it yeah. could be size of shop. It could be, um, you know, some type of growth that they're experiencing around a new yeah. cohort of people joining. Like I would imagine if somebody says, you know, we're in a hiring freeze and no new people are starting for the next 12 months. You still might think there's a way to help, but probably not as obvious as somebody who says we're about to add 20 fundraisers. Yeah, I think that what I, I hear from people that it's really about the skills that they're looking for to support their fundraising team. And so when they say we really need help in qualifying more people, you know, or we really need help in not just asking for the minimum endowment amount, but actually making more ambitious asks. Or we really need to be more thoughtful in our cultivation strategies and maybe move a little faster toward a gift. I mean, all these kind, or we need to be better at talking about impact or transformation, um, you know, on behalf of the university or we're really wanting to invest in our fundraising managers. And we know that that is a place where we need to grow. All those things are, you know, make me go, yes, 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 we do that. We can help you. Are there anecdotes or data that you look for six months later, a year later, where, where you can just unequivocally say this worked? And it's not like it's a one and done thing, but there could be a one and done step function improvement in driving better process, driving more confidence, elevating the ask amount, whatever it may be that we're like, what are the case studies where you look back and say, we did it. That's what we need to do consistently. Yeah. I feel really lucky, Brent, because I think every single week we get some kind of anecdote or data, I guess, on how it's working for people. And so I just talked to an organization um, two days ago, and they went through Fundraisers University, which is our kind of foundational course. And they said our prospect management team was seeing so much more activity in people getting visits that they were like, what happened? <laughs> what is what is going on? Um, which is amazing. What did happen, Jenna? I mean, you know, I was talking about this with a colleague yesterday. Um, I have spoken with Greg Willems at, at K-State several times, uh, John Morris, who's now at Auburn, and, and they do such a great job 
crystallizing things into, into easily understood um, tenants of how to do the work. They often talk about what is your job as a development officer? Get visits, conduct visits, follow up on visits. If you did nothing else but those three things, you are more likely than most to succeed because the world is distracting and there's a million other things that you can get pulled into, but how do we optimize getting visits, conducting visits, following up on visits? Sounds similar to some of what the before and after stories are that you were just mentioning. Yeah, they. The, what changes is we are providing um, an email formula essentially that is um, better, <laughs> that is much more, uh, I think most of us were taught to write emails that are very formal, almost like business letters that don't work anymore. That's not how we use email anymore. And so really helping to get very direct, very personal, and ask for what you want, which is a visit, a call, a Zoom, you know, um, which I tend, I think because a lot of us are apologetic about fundraising, we don't quite get there. We sort of beat around the bush um, or we're afraid to use specific dates because we think, you know, if you could meet any time in the next month, what would that look like? <laughs> we just want to be nice. Um, but getting really specific in your email and thinking about it as if you were writing it to a regular human. I think we put donors in a different category, like they're not people, but they're totally just people, just like we are. And they do the same kinds of, you know, things that we do when we get an email that is way too long to read on your phone. And you're like, nope. Right. <laughs> you know? yeah. This is so good. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, this there's a lot of science around sales and, you know, we're on the, the sales business, sales to development professionals. Um, but we think about that all the time. I love the example you just shared. I never, like, I do not want to see an email from my team that goes out saying, do you have any time to meet? Like, do you have any time to meet, for example, Friday at 2 p.m., Tuesday at 3 p.m., 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. or next Thursday at, like, make it easier for them. Narrow yes. it down. Do I have any yes. time to meet, like, in my life? <laughs> A very different question than do you have time in these specific times? So without giving away all of your IP and, and playbooks, what are some other just quick wins, um, more succinct emails? Like we don't need the flower, like every presidential email that goes out has to be at least three pages, I think. <laughs> right. a quick hit, yep. uh, you know, a hundred words or less, uh, be really direct with specific times, like any other themes that stand out? Yeah, I think um, the other part of this is just persistence. So don't just send an email and sit back and wait two weeks and then try to send another email um, and then kind of think maybe I should take them off my list because they just don't respond. Uh, I think because of that lack of confidence sometimes or just not wanting to bother people or not wanting to feel like a stalker or or a salesperson. I don't think that we are as persistent as we could be. So really trying to follow up much more and in different ways. So we talk about using LinkedIn. Um, it's such a great tool and it, it's free. I mean, <laughs> you don't even have to have the premium membership to use it, to communicate with people and connect with people. And 
you have to use the phone. I know that nobody wants to and cold calling sucks and <laughs> it's just not, it is not fun. But as a follow-up to your email and your LinkedIn request and maybe a text, like actually putting a voice to yourself, leaving a voicemail, being a human in a world of spam is really, really important. And creating a cadence that is just much more persistent than we typically are. I am recalling a meeting I had with Jonah Nye. He was a guest, uh, episode 144 of the podcast and leads advancement at the new school. And he was telling me about a time that he met with a donor and then to get the second meeting, it took 17 touch points. And then it led to a material philanthropic commitment. And the data that we've seen across the Evertrue platform is that it takes 6.5 touch points to get a visit, uh, which when we started A, measuring that and B, sharing that in the advancement community, I mean, people kind of thought it was crazy because, you know, reaching out to somebody six or seven or eight times does feel like uh, to some people, maybe harassment. And we just got to reframe it as, no, people are super busy and that's just what it takes. And it doesn't mean that they don't absolutely love the institution. It doesn't mean they're sitting around saying, one of my goals this year is to be less philanthropic. They're just busy. And getting to a clear no or a yes or a maybe is better than silence, which is where we leave things after we send the second or third email and they didn't write back. Absolutely. I think the last part about this, Brent, that is really important is also just turning the conversation to money in that first or second visit um, so that you actually are qualifying someone, so that you do, in fact, know that you are spending your time with people who at some point will want to make a gift. And again, that's something that I think if I had, I, I found myself not feeling purposeful in conversations, wondering where I was going in the conversation, you know, what's my goal? What am I, why am I here? <laughs> why, do, why does it feel like I'm starting my conversations over and over and over? And it's because I didn't know necessarily how to turn the conversation to money and I felt uncomfortable about it. And so we just share some specific phrases to help people to make sure that they're being very clear about why they're there and that they understand why they're there. So they're having much more purposeful visits that actually lead to uncovering, is this person a prospect or not a prospect? Love it. Uh, Jenna, time is flying by. So um, if people want to learn more, want to get connected, I know you're active on LinkedIn. I mean, what are the other ways to just... Uh, learn more about your work or maybe get access to some of the, the, the content that you have developed over the years uh, and so forth. Yeah. So I, I mean, Jenna at generouschange.com is how to get a hold of me. And the website has a little bit of information. I think about, you know, the courses that we do. Um, and then we lead quarterly webinars as well. And so I tend to put those on LinkedIn and invite people. So you know, paying attention there, LinkedIn is probably the only place that I am not much of a social media <laughs> person, um, but LinkedIn is, is my home, so. 
I got called out by a teammate who said I'm more likely to respond faster on LinkedIn than if it's an email. And really? sadly, yeah. the reality uh, in part because the LinkedIn inbox is at least still somewhat uh, clean, you know, crazy yes. quests aside uh, relative to the traditional inbox. But that's uh, right. That's right. <laughs> I, I wish you the best and appreciate your willingness to um to share uh, here and uh, and I look forward to continuing to get to know you. Maybe there are ways to collaborate more directly. Uh, and yeah, that's uh, uh, just grateful for your time. Thank you, super grateful too. Love being here and um, really glad to have this conversation. It's super fun to talk about things that I also geek out about. <laughs> so thanks for thanks for having me on. Right there with you, sending good vibes to uh, all the fundraisers closing out the fiscal year today on June 30th. And with that, uh, I am going to sign off. The world needs more generous change. I am pleased to uh, have welcomed Jenna Goodman, who leads that organization today. Uh, and so with that, thank you, Jenna, and take care, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.